0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Canberra-born Alex Biggs, who currently lives and works in Kiev, Ukraine. Whilst sheltering from a major air raid conducted by Russia against Ukraine in Ukraine's capital, Kiev, Alex joined me to give a first-hand account of what life is like in Kiev Alex has shared her experiences in a piece for Inside Story, reflecting on the one-year anniversary since the beginning of this war. She joined me to explain exactly what life is like on the ground for everyday Ukrainians who are subject to regular air raids with missiles and drones. She also reflects on their perspective on the war and how it's evolving as well as the cultural and linguistic changes taking place in the capital and across the country, which are creating a strong sense of Ukrainian national identity. Alex is based in Ukraine as she is the program manager for the Norwegian Refugee Council and is currently assisting displaced people in the north of the country. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome onto this show someone who I've never spoken with before. I'm absolutely in awe of her. Her name is Alex Biggs. Alex is a Canberra-born Australian. She is currently in Kyiv in Ukraine, where she's working as a program manager for the Norwegian Refugee Council. She's working in the north of Ukraine, supporting displaced Ukrainians, among many other things. Alex has actually written an excellent piece for Inside Story, which is an online publication here in Australia. It's reflecting on the year that has been Russia's war against Ukraine. It's called Kyiv One Year On. A new normal has taken root in a city at war. And I am absolutely pleased to welcome onto the show Alex, who is joining us right now from Kiev. Hi there, Alex, and thank you very much for speaking with us today.
1: Thanks so much, Amy, and uh, good morning from Kiev. It's kind of
0: surreal to think that that is exactly where you are and I'm talking to you over there, especially because this war is playing out so publicly. As I was preparing for the interview, I was looking at Twitter because I have a little column that says journalists in Ukraine, and I was getting all these updates about what was happening overnight in Kyiv as we were just talking about off air, it seems that there's been some bombardments going on for the last six or so hours in Kyiv, but also across the rest of Ukraine. There's quite a number of areas that have been affected. And it really goes to the heart of your piece that you wrote because you do describe a lot of what happens in day to day life in Kyiv when there is a missile strike, an air raid and the process that you go through. So I thought it's um obviously a pretty good illustration of what's happening for you at the moment. So I thought we might just reflect on the events of this morning and what life is like at the moment in Kiev, especially on today, the day currently being the 9th of March.
1: That's absolutely right, Amy. So uh, we woke up this morning to air raid sirens going off just after midnight. And this morning I'm speaking to you after six hours of sustained air raid attacks on Ukrainian cities across the country, including here in Kyiv. Just an hour and a half ago, there were large explosions over Kyiv. We are yet to know exactly what has been hit or what targets were being attacked, but certainly the fear of air raids is a constant reality for people living in Ukraine. I spent the night on my my bathroom floor. I'm very lucky I do have heated tiles, but uh, nevertheless, this is something that everyday Ukrainians, even if they are far from the active front lines of the conflict in the east of the country, are living with. Um, also, when we have these airstrikes, it also has enormous ramifications for people's everyday living. There are emergency electricity shutoffs this morning that mean that millions of Ukrainians are waking up with no power in their homes. Often we have water cuts after these sorts of airstrikes. So people in their everyday life, as everyday civilians, are affected by these types of airstrikes that are targeting civilian infrastructure. Absolutely. And I think it's obviously
0: quite concerning, given that you are or have been, at least in the depths of winter, and the reports that I've seen on the news show reporters standing out Uh outside with snow falling on their faces and their hair. So it seems like even though spring is apparently just around the corner, that it's been very cold over there. Has that also really played a factor in the last few months when it comes to air raids and the potential for water and electricity to be cut off and the need to shelter?
1: Absolutely. I mean, most shelters are underground basements in houses. These are unheated, uninsulated basements basically that people go and seek safety in when there are airstrikes happening. Also, of course, when there are hits on civilian targets, this means that people in the depths of winter, in minus twenty degrees, in snowfall, don't have a roof over their head, don't have hot water, don't have heating in their homes. So I would certainly say that this has been one of the most difficult winters on record for Ukraine. And you know, the sustained airstrikes that this country has experienced since October have really contributed to that.
0: Well, it's interesting to see that through the Guardian's live blog, we're hearing from Kiev's mayor, who has reported that after the missile attack, due to emergency power outages, 40% of the capital's consumers are currently without heating. The water supply is apparently unaffected in Kyiv, but I've read elsewhere that in other parts of Ukraine, water supply has been cut off, as you describe. But one of the big concerns was around the strikes this morning affecting Ukraine's nuclear power plant in. Zaporizhia. And there are concerns about that, the fact that that power system has been cut off, but also that a thermoelectric power station in Kiev has had a lot of smoke billowing out of it as well this morning. So obviously this is all very early reporting. Clearly this is quite a significant morning. And I know that it's not a rare morning in the sense that air raids happen quite often, but could you put it into context for us? Because I've seen some commentary of people saying we were waiting for this kind of whole country air raid offensive to kind of come about again, and we were waiting for one of these kind of big coordinated strikes. How often do those kind of strikes happen in Ukraine across the country?
1: Large scale attacks are frequent. I mean, uh, people try to do the math, and, and I know that some suggest that every 10 to 15 days there is a mass coordinated air attack on Ukrainian cities. I mean, it has been a lull, I would say, for the last two weeks. Uh, But people are nervous at the moment. It's just over one year since the full-scale war broke out on the 24th of February 2022. And also as we head into spring, there are very valid concerns that there will be an uptick in the conflict, a spring offensive, if you will. Mm. And so certainly I do think that this airstrike had been anticipated, this airstrike fits into this broader fear that we're about to see an escalation in the conflict here. And so certainly, in terms of situating it within the broader context of the last few months in Ukraine, it's not out of the ordinary, in that we've had attacks like this in the last few months, particularly since October last year. But certainly, I think people are nervous at the moment. And so you know, there is a lot of concern. People are waking up very anxious this morning that things are really about to get worse.
0: Yeah. And as you said, those air raid sirens had been going for quite a number of hours and just finished before our conversation started. That also must add to the anxiety, I guess, is not only the air raid sirens, but also hearing these different sounds, whether it's a missile sound, as you describe in your piece, very, very vividly, You're talking about the types of sounds that you hear in Kyiv. The howl of air raid sirens has grown familiar, as has the percussion of air defence systems. Kyiv residents tell you that they can identify the nature of an air attack even from their basements, the lawnmower-sized engine of an Iranian-made Shahed drone perhaps or the whine of larger missiles as they lose altitude. It is very easy to kind of imagine that in your mind, the different types of noises and and people really getting to understand what that might mean for them in real terms. You know, is that a, a ballistic missile? Is that a drone? What are some of the observations you've been having being there? How often do Iranian drones come into the city in in the capital at Kiev? How often are you listening for those missile sounds? Are they the main types of bombardment that you would get in an air raid and are there other sounds that residents are listening out for and also I guess caused anxiety by?
1: Well, I will say that this is a very 21st century war in that every time an air raid siren goes off, which is at least daily, but you know, often up to three or four times a day, we all take to our phones and uh, hop on Telegram, hop on WhatsApp and go to these large scale chats where people are observing and commenting on what's happening. So I can be there as an air raid siren goes off and hop onto my phone and actually see that, okay, it's a missile launch from the Black Sea Fleet or I can see that, okay, there are drones Coming up the river Dnieper in direction of Kiev. So it is surreal in that sense that people are out there estimating what time it will reach Kiev. So this morning, when the alarm first went off, I was in bed, of course, moved to my bathroom and was reading the commentary that uh, expected time in Kiev was 10 past 3 a.m. So we know what's happening. And I think that's one of the extraordinary things about this conflict. So there is this live stream of information that's not just restricted to, you know, military or political spheres, it's something that everyday Ukrainians have access to as well. And I think that really helps inform how people understand this conflict. When there's an air raid siren, and it's uh, something that people don't necessarily consider an active threat, let's say just a plane takeoff from Belarus or something, then uh, people will say, Oh, no, I'm not going to go to the shelter this time. But then of course, You have nights like tonight where there is a very real and very active threat and, uh, of course, that informs how people respond to that as well.
0: It takes me to another part of your piece where you were talking about the decision making flow that you go through when you're considering what to do. And as you say, the notifications on your phone, the ability to access this information in real time. Clearly, it's quite crucial because, as we know in this war, it's not military versus military. Absolutely, Ukrainian civilians are affected, our targets. Very often, we've seen that not just. Uh, in Kyiv, but around the country. And I was wanting to get a sense from you as to what would trigger you to choose your bathroom versus to go across the street to that basement shelter across the road. What are some of those decisions that you have to make and the types of judgments that you're making and others in Ukraine are making alongside you? How do you even make a, a life and death decision like that when it happens so frequently?
1: I think uh, it's a funny one because it's always one of those things that people say that you never know how you'll react in a war or in an extreme situation until it happens to you. And living here in Ukraine, I have learned that about myself as well, of course. And so like many people living here, I have a grab bag with my passport, with some water, some snacks, uh, a thermal blanket, ready to go if I need to but also like many Ukrainians I'm tired it's snowing outside it's you know minus 5 minus 10 degrees and so you make pragmatic decisions i think on a on a case-to-case basis i know that i've been guilty myself of sleeping through some of the alarms in the last few weeks at times when i've felt run down or i just have not had it in me to relocate but certainly you know i i think all of us make our own decisions based on what we see as the severity of the threat and that's the decision then do i go to my bathroom which is the safest place in my apartment because it has no windows it's um surrounded by two external walls and you know would be safer or do i get up get dressed put on my boots put on my snow jacket and descend outside to get to the basement across the road and you know i'm not always proud of those decisions i make but i think all of us are doing our best and are very acutely aware that these air attacks are indiscriminate. You know, people can be in their own homes and nowhere near an immediate piece of infrastructure that you would perceive to be a target, and yet they can still be hit. Mm. So in that way, I think there is generalized fear, but also an acceptance that this is life now, and so people make those decisions on a on a day-to-day, case-to-case basis. And you write
0: in your piece as well, that the city citizens have fashioned a new normal. You describe some of the activities that people might get up to. For example, you say that we can see Kyiv's bars and restaurants packed with patrons toasting to victory before returning home ahead of the curfew. It seems like, as you say, there's a lot of resilience and a lot of spirit still within the Ukrainian population. And I'm reminded of seeing some videos on Twitter of some of the more elderly citizens of Ukraine dancing, partnered in a subway area to an accordion being played. And and it was kind of a very beautiful video. And you see a lot of these types of videos of life continuing in Ukraine, in Kiev. I guess I wanted to get a sense from you as to how Ukrainians have tried to fashion a new normal, have tried to hold on to some of the joys and things that were making them happy before this war. How have they maintained their sense of solidarity and spirit?
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, as an example, yesterday was International Women's Day, which is actually a public holiday here in Ukraine and widely celebrated. Um, The streets were filled with people selling flowers. I popped out at lunchtime yesterday from my office and lots of people were out on dates with their partners, you know, taking their girlfriends, taking their wives out for lunch. So people do really have a strong sense that life must continue. I think one year after this war started, and especially one year since the Russian invasion was repelled from Kiev itself, people are determined that this war will not destroy their lives, their sense of self, their sense of what it is to be Ukrainian. And so I think for me some of the most striking examples of that have been the persistence of Ukrainian cultural institutions. So I live not far from the Kiev Opera House, and almost every day there are performances. There are ballets, there are operas, there are concerts you know, as I wrote, people still go out to restaurants, to bars, and all of these things have been adapted for the war, absolutely. So I could tell you all of the best underground basement bars in Kiev, because (laughs) those are places where you don't have to relocate if there's an air raid siren. Or, uh, you know, the the theatres and opera house have protocols for air raid sirens and how they can relocate the performances underground if need be. So there is really this sense that Ukrainian culture, which is one of the targets of this war, I would say, will not be eroded by it, and people will continue living their lives and will fight for their sense of normalcy, even as we live in really unnormal times. Just last night, I was uh, out after work having a beer at a small craft brewery with a friend, and then a few hours later, airstrikes start. so it's you know it, it is a strange life of contradictions but it's something that I think people have adapted to and I think it's something that people hold really strongly and, and in high value.
0: And you mentioned there how culture and Ukrainian culture in particular has been a target of the war and we did see reports around different cultural institutions being targeted, some looting occurring, cultural objects being damaged. That is and has been a concern I know of, of many across the world, and I know there's been a lot of efforts to try and protect what is left, but it does make you wonder, especially from my perspective being someone who isn't there, who doesn't really get a clear sense of what's left, what's been damaged the most, what's still under threat, could you give us a sense of some of what might have been lost in Kiev, in the capital, whether that's cultural or otherwise, you know, architecture, et cetera, and what's still something that's being closely guarded? Are there areas that have been sought to be saved or, or objects tried to be moved elsewhere to protect them? What kind of things are you aware of culturally or otherwise that you know have been a focus in this war, either for destruction by the Russians or protection by the Ukrainians?
1: We've been very fortunate in Kyiv in that, um, as I'm sure all the listeners are aware, The attack on Kiev was repelled early in the war last year. But nevertheless, Kiev's cultural institutions have still been affected. I remember with shock when I took myself to the uh, National Art Gallery here in Kiev and realized that actually there's no art on the walls. It's all been evacuated and it's all uh, locked up for safekeeping. And similarly, the National Museum has only, I think, two out of 18 galleries are open because many of the treasures have been taken away for safekeeping. Similarly, here in Kiev, you walk around the city streets and you realise that all of the sort of statues and monuments have been boxed up, quite literally, boarded up and sandbagged in order to protect them from the potential impact of airstrikes or other attacks. And, you know, all of this is in response to what we have seen in areas where there has been active conflict. Entire museums in the east of Ukraine have been looted. Monasteries, churches, religious institutions have been destroyed. Galleries and other kinds of cultural heritage institutions have been damaged, have had their treasures taken from them. And so people recognise that this war is not just one of military aggression but rather one that includes a direct attack on the culture and history of this very proud country.
0: Mm. You mentioned there that there are clearly other areas where the, the attacks have been more sustained and significant in terms of the buildings, that type of heritage. And I do recall seeing that Odessa was targeted quite heavily at one stage last year and a lot of people were commenting and making comparisons between what it did look like compared to what it is now Are there instances to you that stick out in your mind, you know, visually striking images where you think, wow, this was such a a beautiful thing and it's lost? Or are there other areas where you're like, wow, that has stood the test of attacks and deluge of bombs?
1: I mean, one of the tragedies of this conflict is that entire cities have been flattened. Beautiful cities with rich heritage in the east of Ukraine are no longer People are living in ruins or in underground basements, you know, warrens, basically, because the cities above them have been completely destroyed by bombardment and by active conflict. I think one particularly resonant case that comes to mind for many Ukrainians is that of Mariupol, a beautiful city with actually a strong Greek heritage, interestingly enough, where one of the final sites for major civilian evacuation was the theatre of Mariupol, which was then bombed, even though it was identified as a site for civilian evacuation. And so people look to these cities and they look to the experience of the many millions of displaced Ukrainians who have come to places like Kiev from these destroyed cities, towns, villages in the east and south of the country. And they recognise that We are both super fortunate in a city like Kiev that we are able to persist and continue with our lives, but they also recognize the enormous damage that this conflict has done to civilians in this country. And certainly, you know, I've I've worked previously before coming to Ukraine in Iraq, another country where cities were flattened by conflict. And, you know, I've seen that it takes years to rebuild and even longer. To repair the damage to the life of the people affected by those conflicts. Yeah, such
0: an important point to be making. And there has been some kind of in depth video reporting around those areas that have been affected especially by alleged war crimes where, you know, Human Rights Watch has been quite active in places like Bucha but also I know there's a journalist, Belle True from The Independent who recently released a documentary called The Body in the Woods looking at the Ukrainian civilian experience and when family goes missing, you know, how do you identify the bodies of the family members if they are in fact dead, Um, you know, one example comes to mind of a teenager whose uh, family essentially disappeared after they went to take supplies to an area. They came back along a road and suddenly they're gone. And now he's living with his lawyer because he he doesn't have any other family and he's still just a teenager. So there's all these, I guess, individual stories, which seem to highlight a much broader challenge. And, and obviously, um, you know, distress of people who are affected outside of Kyiv as well. Given that through your work, um, clearly you have worked with displaced people in Ukraine, what are some of the experiences that we may not be familiar with, the day to day experiences, especially of those who have been most affected, as you say, in some of those outer areas of Ukraine that have been really a significant focus for the Russians on the ground as well as from the air?
1: I think one of the things that struck me, at least, in coming to Ukraine and speaking with my Ukrainian colleagues and speaking with Ukrainians in the course of my work is that, you know, Russia is a near neighbor. Many people have family who live across the border, who have relatives in Moscow, in St. Petersburg, and have strong connections with Russia. Many Ukrainians uh, speak Russian at home. And many Ukrainians have done most of their education in Russian. And one of the effects of this war is that it has severed a close relationship, undoubtedly at times difficult or challenging relationship, especially politically over the last decades, but certainly have severed these very human relationships between Russians and Ukrainians. I have colleagues who tell me that, you know, they no longer speak to their aunt across the border because she doesn't understand what's going on or she sympathises with the Russian aggression against Ukrainian cities. And so, you know, these stories are very common. And I think one of the things that is striking is that after this war is over, Russia will still be Ukraine's neighbour. And I think that human cost to those relationships will be one that will be difficult to rebuild.
0: It does make me think of something that you mention in your piece and that I've read more widely as well is the way that Ukraine has, I guess, embraced a a type of patriotism and also changed the language locally, changed the names of different things that were references to Russia. And also I did read, for example, that in Kyiv, Until last year, that population was largely Russian-speaking, but now, according to a survey done in January, uh, 33% of people from Kyiv have adopted Ukrainian as their predominant language. 46% 46% were already speaking Ukrainian and 13% speaking Russian. So, of course, a lot of people in Ukraine are bilingual, but it seems that there is this focus to reinforce Ukraine's national identity and culture. And I wondered if you had observations about that yourself, the types of things that you've particularly noticed from your colleagues, from people living in Kyiv about how they Approach this question, especially given this strong feeling against Russia, given that they've started this war against Ukraine. How have you seen these language and cultural shifts and, and sense of national identity materialize?
1: I will say that one of the ironies of this conflict is that, converse to the aims of the Russian Federation, it has in fact accelerated the de Russification of Ukraine. And that is something that we see every single day here in Kiev. For example, what used to be St. Petersburg Street is now London Street. So it happens in very tangible ways like that, but also, as you say, in the ways that people identify themselves, in the ways that they communicate with others, and in everyday symbols that people adopt. You can't walk 10 meters without seeing uh, Ukrainian flags, the very striking yellow and blue of the national flag. And as you very rightly mentioned, people who previously may have spoken Russian at home, in their schools, in other institutions, are now making a concerted effort to adopt Ukrainian as their primary language. Patriotism also, you know, infects all all aspects of our lives here. I think uh, in my article, I mentioned some of the cocktails that you see on menus uh, which are
0: Mm, they
1: sound amazing too by the way they are I mean there's excellent mixologists here in Kiev but uh, yeah (laughs) absolutely I mean all of these things have taken on a national flavor I think uh, to go back to your earlier question as well about culture and the impact there so the Ukrainian musical and performance institutions no longer perform Russian composers or Russian playwrights so last Christmas, there's no Tchaikovsky on the menu at the National Ballet, no, no Nutcracker or any of those traditional performances. Instead, you can hear music or see ballets from all over the world. But there is an absolute taboo on Russian literature, Russian music and uh, anything else that's associated with the aggressor in this conflict.
0: I certainly saw as well that a a Ukrainian tennis player, they beat their Russian counterpart and refused to shake hands. So there's a lot of this strong symbolism as well as clearly a kind of way that Ukrainians are taking a stand in their own way if they're not on the front lines partaking in the military battle, so to speak. There is obviously a, a different type of battle being waged as well and very successfully by the Ukrainians. As you say, very much counter to Russia's intent and what they hoped might happen here, I guess. What are some of the ways that Ukrainians look at this war? What are the conversations that you hear about the way that they see it currently playing out? where it might go into the future or is that just too much to contemplate given the day-to-day stresses you know what kind of frame of mind do you see Ukrainians currently holding about how this war has gone on especially given we did have that milestone of the the 1 year anniversary just recently
1: Ukrainians i think recognize that this is a national struggle so even those who are away from the immediate front lines are following developments incredibly closely. All of the Ukrainians I speak to can tell you the specification of European tanks that they want. They can tell you about the aeroplanes that Ukraine has requested from allies for its military. They are acutely aware of those developments on the ground and also behind the scenes in the diplomatic and international spheres. But I will say that I think that too much speculation can be dangerous. I mean, people thrive on hope, but certainly there is, I think, especially right now, recognition that it may be a very difficult few months ahead of this country. And that progress, especially in regards to retaking territories that have been occupied, is not necessarily linear and will not come at a low cost. And so people are nervous. People are following these developments. And people are looking to Ukraine's allies for the military hardware and support that they see as critical to repelling this invasion.
0: Yeah, what an excellent point. It did take me to one of the questions I had for you around military hardware. As you say, you know, we see Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky very specifically talking in his press conferences with international media about what he wants from them, what he wants for example, Rishi Sunak to provide to Ukraine when he was speaking to a BBC reporter. For example, we just saw Poland provide some Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine, which they say are going to be very important in spring to, I guess, get on the front foot in this war. There's also, of course, what we would know of here in Australia, the Bushmaster that are made in Bendigo. We've provided a number of those, but I'm sure that Vladimir Zelensky would like to more of them, what are some of the the kind of things that are most front of mind now in terms of Ukrainians and and obviously the President seeking further international support, further international involvement because there have been points of tension with NATO being very cautious and the US being cautious about what it provides and obviously China at the moment is under some pressure to provide armaments to Russia. Do you have a sense of where public sentiment is at around that and just how sufficient international support has been so far?
1: Well, for all that I say that in some ways life goes on as normal or a new normal in cities like Kiev, certainly it's impossible to ignore the devastating economic impact of this conflict on the country. There are 8 million Ukrainians who are now refugees outside of its borders and another 7 million estimated who are internally displaced within the country. The economy has been ravaged. And so Ukraine is looking to its allies, not just for military armaments and tangible supplies like the leopard tanks, like uh, fighter jets, or even uh, shells in order to sustain the battles that are going on on the Eastern Front and the Southern Front, but also for Economic propping up. And in addition to this, of course, is the humanitarian assistance that people like myself are working in. So the needs of Ukrainian people are acute. There are destroyed homes, there are destroyed schools. People's access to food, to water, to electricity, and other basic services has absolutely been eroded by this conflict. And so the needs are huge. And I know that Ukrainians are so aware that they must keep international attention on the plight of Ukraine. And so I think there is a lot of recognition among everyday Ukrainians for the work of Vladimir Zelensky, the president, and other members of Ukraine's leadership who every single day are lobbying and advocating and really pushing for those needs of Ukraine across the spectrum. And uh, certainly people are aware that especially as we have passed this one-year anniversary of the conflict, there is a tendency for the public attention to move on to the next disaster or the next brewing war, let's say. And certainly the people in Ukraine cannot afford for attention to fall away from this particular conflict and on the acute human cost it has had in this country.
0: It does remind me of seeing that there are not-for-profits, for for example, working in Ukraine at the moment, providing supplies for pets. So, you know, cats and dogs who don't have food and veterinary aid and, and that type of thing. So it's obviously, you know, the human population as well as often the other populations you don't think about, you know, the domestic animals that still need support as well. And I'm sure they do provide a lot of comfort to those who are particularly traumatized or finding it difficult at the moment during this war. I wanted to also just touch on journalists in Ukraine and the way that the war is currently being reported. Given that as we were talking off air, you know, you said that you obviously see these journalists, these very big names walking around Kiev, you know, reporting. What are some of your observations about the way that this war is in a a very, very much a 21st century way is being reported? And what are some of the observations you have about how this particular war is being reported?
1: I do think the war in Ukraine is extraordinary in just how technologically advanced it is and just how easy it is for everyone to follow. Certainly, you know, this is a country with enormous digital literacy rates. And so even we saw at the beginning of the conflict, People were, you know, reporting and calling in on the location of the Russian advance on Kiev, and so uh, you know, people just texting into their local, you know, city councillor or reporting to their local military hotline on where, you know, the Russian advance had reached, where the first tanks were, et cetera. Wow. And so, definitely, this is a conflict that I think goes beyond just traditional media coverage. Of course, we have a large number of wonderful and renowned journalists who are covering this conflict and and indeed some very brave ones who are embedded with frontline forces in the east and, and south of Ukraine. But also this is a conflict that is playing out on social media. I mentioned earlier the sort of telegram groups and WhatsApp groups that people follow for live updates on airstrikes and attacks on Ukrainian cities. But equally, you know, there are Frontline forces who post video updates, who share information about their progress that day, whether there's been a retreat or an advance. And so I do think that this is a pretty extraordinary conflict in that you can garner as much information by scrolling Twitter as you would by scrolling through a reputable news source. So it it is an interesting one in that way. And it has turned almost all civilians in this country into citizen journalists in some way or other.
0: Yeah, what an excellent point. It also reminds me having scrolled through Twitter a bit myself that you know you do see these first-hand videos from in the trenches with Ukrainian soldiers for example being shelled, having hand grenades tossed at them, being under fire with machine guns, etc., and the type of pressure that they're under, it is quite amazing to think that you can have that really first-hand account of how the war might be playing out in a certain area. And, you know, you don't need to go to the BBC to get that particular information. It is there in a raw, unfiltered sense. I just wanted to close out this conversation with a couple of personal things from you, Alex. I think that people listening here in Melbourne will be not only impressed by you and certainly admiring of your courage, but they'd also, I think, Probably have a burning question, which is what led you to do this kind of work, to work in war torn Iraq and Ukraine? What is the driving force for you to be doing this and to be out there taking some personal risks as well to be able to do this type of work?
1: I feel incredibly lucky to have been able to pursue an international humanitarian career. And for me, it's really driven by the primacy of human rights, and that these must be upheld even in times of conflict. Uh, and certainly, you know, as, as you said, my career has taken me to the Middle East and and now to Europe, working with populations who have had their lives devastated by war. And I think many listeners will recognise just how fortunate we are in Australia, that we live largely peaceful lives where things like Airstrikes are not part of our everyday vocabulary and not an everyday concern for us. And so I I really feel driven by a desire to do what I can, which is just one small part of a much larger machinery of humanitarian aid and assistance to protect and advance the rights and protections of civilians in conflict.
0: Well, we're so grateful that you are and that so many others are there on the ground doing that work. One final thing, Alex, if there's anything that you really want the Australian public here to know about from on the ground in Ukraine or if you think Ukrainians want us to know something about this war, do you have any things that you think that we really should know about? Perhaps we don't know it or perhaps we don't get the gravity of something Is there anything that you feel that we should know about that we don't really quite understand at the moment about this war?
1: I think often when we think of refugees or people who've been forcibly displaced, it's easy for us to other them. It's easy to think about this as people who are different from us or people who live very different lives from us. And certainly here in Ukraine, I think all of us, we'd recognise the people who've been affected by this conflict as neighbours, as people in our community. These are people who had very normal lives. Ukraine is a country that was moving towards EU and NATO accession and has been devastated by this conflict. It is ordinary, everyday Ukrainians who have had their houses destroyed, who've had their livelihoods destroyed, who have seen their... Neighbours and members of their communities killed or injured by this conflict. And so I would stress that the people of Ukraine need our support and will continue to need our support. And I do think that Australians, as with people across the world, can show that support and generosity in a number of ways. I spend a lot of time passing through Poland, which is now hosting over a million Ukrainian refugees. And certainly in Australia, we are not in a similar position, but nevertheless, we can help those in our community and we can help other communities that are hosting Ukrainian refugees and people displaced by this horrific conflict.
0: Yeah. Alex, it's been just absolutely eye-opening and and really important to hear your firsthand account of what's been happening in Ukraine. And uh, it's just been really, I think, very illuminating for myself and I'm sure for those listening. I'm so grateful to you for your time and for everything you're doing there. And I really do hope that today there are no further air raids, that you perhaps get some sleep as the rest of Kiev does and Ukraine. And um, I hope that we can check in again sometime down the track.
1: Thank you so much, Amy. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and uh, thanks for your time. I've just been
0: speaking with Alex Biggs. She is based over in Ukraine at the moment in the capital city of Kyiv, where she is a program manager for the Norwegian Refugee Council, and she's written an excellent first hand piece for Inside Story called Kyiv, One Year On, A New Normal Has Taken Root in a City at War, and I'll post the link to that on our social media. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast.